Product Camp Columbus is a monthly event to discuss all things product. Product experts discuss their methodologies, insights, and experiences in building great products. Product Camp Columbus is made possible by our lead partners, AWH, builders of exceptional digital products that drive business for growth companies, and Rev1 Ventures. Visit productcampcolumbus.com for info on upcoming events. Now, onto this month's event podcast. How do you pronounce your last name? Seif. Seif. Okay. German. See, I was going to say Seif, and then I knew it was going to be wrong. Derek is Senior Vice President of Product Strategy at Earth Solutions. Which and Earth Solutions may have a new uh, new name. Did, did no, the company sit- get renamed uh, with nope. the product launch and rebrand? No, we did launch a new product. The company is still named Earth Solutions. Okay, we're 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 moving. We're taking the focus off the company brand and onto the both of our product brands. So that's just a strategic decision that we made. So it, it's the company's gone through a significant evolution, not only with the release of the new product, and we'll talk you know more about that but just sort of fundamentally sort of how you think about the business and what's important and, and number of customers you want to serve and markets and valuation, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Give us an initial, initial foray into the background of, of Earth, where you've been and, and you know, kind of what some of the, the, the big challenge was that you're now evolving significantly away from. Wow. Or challenges. That's a big question. Yes. So, uh, um, I'll start with a little history. Um, so Earth Solutions uh, as a company has been around since 1985. They actually started out as a lottery verification company. Um, so it verified, it had technology that verified lottery tickets. Over time, that business went away. New business came up as, um, that was focused on IVR, which is interactive voice response. So it kind of translate human speak into digital format. They were basically reselling uh, and installing IVR solutions around the country. And that got them into uh, what was a the the one call business, because the one call business needed that type of technology. Now what one call business is a nationwide program for the energy and utility industry that is a call before you dig process. So you may have noticed them before, or maybe you will now after I talk about it. There's the eight, you call 811 and you get routed to a call center. The reason you call 811 is because a, you want to dig something in your backyard and you don't want to hit an energy and utility line. So that they were using, they, they were installing technology for that, for each of the one call centers in the United States. Each, each state has one, some states have two. So there's about 54, 56, something like that. And they, so they, they developed technology for that. Then, they, then as compliance and, and, and regulation changes happened, the members of each of those one call centers in the states which are the energy and utility companies here in the U.S., the Time Warners of the world, the Columbia Gases of the world, et cetera, had to be members of those. So they transitioned the technology from the one call centers, which was a very small market in terms of 54 customers, to the energy and utility business. So now serving uh, a number of different energy and utility companies throughout the United States. And mostly, based on what we talked about, we met a couple of weeks ago, 
a mostly sort of sales and development model and driven organization. Yes. Sales would go out and talk to customers. Yep. Customers would say, make it purple. They'd come back to development, say, make it purple. Right. Development would make it purple. And that caused all sorts of, which is not unusual, right? It's no. an unusual model for, for many companies, especially yep. young, growing, you know, sort of organizations. Yep. What kind of challenges did that present, though, with that sort of being the fundamental model of the business? Yeah, so, so at that point um, of serving the energy and utility industry in this, this market, there was, yeah, sales would go out and sell something, and they would, they would come back, and development would have to develop it, or development would have a have an I- great idea that they thought would be great for the market, they would develop it, and they'd go out and they'd try to sell it, right? The challenge that, that that really opened us up into was lots of features in the product that were very specific to one customer, right? So you'd spend all this time developing a feature. It only is good for one customer, and you couldn't sell it to multiple customers because sales was trying to get the deal and, and um, the revenue, really, for, for, the, uh, for that one particular feature. And they had to develop it fast because of promises made, et cetera. So lots of features for one specific product. The, uh, so the, the product became pretty messy. It also had pricing implications. So there was no s- standard pricing model. So you, the, the model was just go get whatever, they, whatever you can get from that customer, depending on what they thought was important. So, for the so does that mean you would have customers on the same product using somewhat of the same feature set, but paying different things? Absolutely. It was, it, was a, it was a complete mess. So you would have to really understand, in order to go sell a new customer, you would have to be at the company for a very long time because you had to understand what are all the feature options available to go sell that customer, and what do you have to turn on and off, and it, was just, it, it just becomes a, a nightmare. A lot of technical debt associated to that too, right? Absolutely. Because, you know, lots of different branches of code and functionality some of which may never even ever get used by a customer, right? Because it was speculative. Yeah, um, so, and, and good, good point if I can interrupt there. They went, they went so far as to, custom, they would develop entire products or entire modules of the product based off of what sales believed they could sell. They developed it. And then because development takes a little bit of time, they'd go back to the customer months later and say, hey, it, it, it's ready now. And they go, eh, well, you know, our business has kind of changed and we don't really want it. So we had three products basically sitting on the shelf at, at that point. So there was sort of this, you know, they, they were the leader uh, in this damage prevention market, serving this one call paradigm and doing very well, but, but the, the growth of that became very f- feature here, feature here. And when you looked at the competition, it was kind of a race to the bottom because we come out with a feature, the competition would come out with another feature, 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 and it just... That was pretty much it. So what was the tipping point to evolve not only the business, but the product to serve a, a broader market and to serve more customers and to not be such a niche company and a, and a niche product? Um, I think the, the, the tipping point was certainly it starts with uh, you know, some of the, the, the goals had changed for the company. So, some of the, the leaders... The leadership in the organization had different ideas of, of what could happen. There was a realization that they, they, we built this business in this niche industry, and we ended up with an extremely, extremely valuable and large enterprise-sized customer base. The largest energy and utility companies in the world 
were our customers. And the, the challenge is that we only did this one little thing for them. And so the tipping point was we, we have this, there, there's this huge customer base that we already have. We only do this one thing and the, pro the, the core paradigm of the problem that we're trying to solve, which, which is managing the field technicians out there for the, for the one call business, actually also applied to all of the field technicians within the energy and utility industry, whether you were doing this one call damage prevention business or not. So that, that was it from an internal perspective. From a market perspective, we, we saw on the energy and utility side that the, the current field technicians that were out using our product were, there was two things that were going on. Number one, there was a, they were, um, the older generation was moving out and the younger generation was moving in. So when that happened, the, there was a combination of consolidation amongst the, um, the other work that needed to go on in the field and it wasn't just a specialized business or a specialized field uh, task that you had to do. So they, were, so they were consolidating multiple jobs into one individual and then they were, the energy and utility companies were trying to capture the knowledge before the aging, the, the aging workforce went out and left and the way to capture it is through technology and the younger workforce was coming in and saying, well, wait a minute, where, where's my iPad? I, I, can't do anything without a without some sort of technology, so there was a combination of internal where we were focused and, and external market forces that, that we were looking at that were that were really a combination of the tipping point. Somebody from Walnut Creek, California, really wants to talk to me. Oh, yeah, they've called. I've been there. It's a they, nice place. Oh, is it really? It I've is. not been there, but they called three times. You know, and, and even after I I said I'm not going to take your call, they called back twice more. So I'll are, be interested to see. Who would that you is. like to take the call? No, no, no. I'll. I'll, I'll are we live streaming? Maybe, are they watching? Maybe they have a question. We're not. Um, but right, maybe, maybe you know, maybe they like, they like our glasses. That's possible. That would be awesome. So you decided to build, and you just released it last week, right, or the week before last? Uh, yeah. So the, the, the new product is broad-based, right? There was some rebranding as part of it. Uh, mm -hmm. So talk about, and we'll dig in more into the product stuff, yeah. but I want to talk more about sort of the business stuff and yeah. sort of the rebranding. How, and, and how we got there. Yeah, and how you got there. Yeah, so, so, I, you know, so we're serving the energy and utility market and, you know, and saying, okay, we do this great thing, we do this niche thing for, this, for, for the energy and utility industry, the opportunity to grow is basically within the energy and utility industry. Still sell more to our existing customers. Always the easier thing to do. And by the way, you've got some customers that most companies would kill to have, yes. right? Large utilities, yep. you know, fairly fairly big organizations, yep. fairly big budgets, right? Yep. Ability Glo global organizations. Global now, and on the flip side, highly regulated, yes. right? Price pressure, consumer pressure, environmental pressure, right? Yes. So it's an it's a it's a customer base that has an interesting dichotomy, right, from a business perspective, serving into that industry. That's right. That's right. And and one of the one of the main drivers of the product that that this company was built on was compliance and regulations, right? The the government basically said you have to have a solution to do to automate this process. So that really helps keep our core product really sticky within the organizations and as we continue to enhance it, it um, 
you know, they, they rely on a product every day because they have to comply with regulations and it provides a lot of efficiencies for them as well. So when we were looking at, when we were looking to say, how do we grow, right? So we, we knew the industry and, but the, the question is, we, we were serving this niche market, but what is the, you know, and, and, and we'd go out and talk to you and say, well, well, we're in the damage prevention market. Nobody really understood what that meant, unless you're in the industry. Is that what you guys were saying or what the customers were saying? I mean, there's a conference around the damage prevention market. Yeah, so everybody, everybody, everybody that was familiar with damage prevention, which is this whole one call, prevent damages from underground. There are probably it, some kids in middle school right now dreaming of being in the damage prevention yeah. industry and being at that conference. It, it is possible. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you know, you guys sort Unlikely, of make, but you guys sort of, you sort of make dreams happen as part of this. <laughs> right, exactly. So, so the, the question, you know, so we're, so the, the question is, what is the, we knew the industry, what is the actual market that we should be a part of, right? And, and did some research, looked at some analyst reports, and ultimately found the general paradigm of our, of the problem that we were solving with our niche product had a lot of similarities to a market that Gartner calls field service management. Now field service management is very broad across all industries. So once we said, okay, well that core paradigm, we can take and apply it and, and, and take the characteristics of the field service management market, we now can then put a vision and essentially a roadmap together to move this thing forward within the energy and utility industry. So we basically took characteristics of the field service management market and applied what we felt was most important to serve our customers in the energy and utility industry and grow our product beyond our current our niche. So what that evolved to was a, a, a product that was much more flexible and configurable because we weren't just trying to solve one problem, we were tr trying to solve multiple problems. So whether you're, whether you're doing an aerial patrol over, the, uh, over a uh, right-of-way for the oil and gas pipeline business, or you're inspecting an oil tank, or you're climbing the telephone pole you can use our product. So we were, we were trying to look at the, the commonalities across all those different workflows and developing a product to meet those. That was our initial expansion outside of the, um, the niche market that we were in. So when, when, you, when you came to that conclusion, how did you then validate and, and ensure that you were building the right features, functionality into the new product? Certainly, talk, we, we talked to existing customers. We, were, we spent a lot of time researching, and I think the, by, by understanding the needs of our existing customers, balanced with the, what we were seeing from a functionality standpoint on the greater market, as Gartner would define it, we, we basically combined those and said, what is the, I, I, I don't really love this term, but what is the, minimal set of features, minimally viable product that we should get out there MV to really test. MVP it. gets said inside these walls, Matt, how many times uh, a week? A thousand? Yeah. <laughs> In my world, it's jumped the shark a little bit, but. Yeah. We, we built a product to, you know, to, sol to solve a problem and initially, and we started to gain traction. 
And we would, and, and the key here, which was very interesting, is that we, we, had to, we had to develop it in such a way that the product set could tackle all these different types of, of workflows or that, that went on within the energy and utility industry in the field, as well as every, uh, comparing a, a, a tank inspection for one company one and a tank inspection for company two, they would actually be very different because of what they thought were their proprietary, unique, and best policies and procedures that they spent a lot of time and money developing and approving in-house. So the solution, our solution had to be adaptable to inspection number one and inspection number two. Now, so it really guided a lot of our product decisions because, because, of, because we serve the energy and utility industry. So as we expand within the energy and utility industry to these different workflows and accommodating all these different types of uh, policies and procedures that, that are unique, while also keeping an eye on the general capabilities of this field service management market allowed us to essentially develop a solution that was unique out there in the market. Because what would happen was, you know, we, we didn't, we weren't rigid and didn't force these companies to change their processes in order to use us. Our software changed with their, was adaptable, configurable, adaptable to their to their business, and that really, you know, uh, gained us a lot of momentum in the market. How did you prioritize what got into the product and what got, what was left out and what's, you know, on the cutting room floor and now in the future product roadmap? Those are very hard decisions that almost sort of belie human nature, right? Because we, 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 we fundamentally think that if a product does more things, it's fundamentally a better product than if, it does, than if it does fewer things. How did you guys work through those prioritizations of what got in and what, and what was out? That was actually, gosh, there's a, um, that was a big change within the organization, right? Because if you remember where we started was whatever the customer said, we just build it, right? So now we have the product management discipline that is instilled within the organization. And we're looking at customer needs, we're looking at market, we have this new vision as to where we're going, which really helps guide the framework for those decisions. When new requests would come in, well, b before new requests would come in, the product management team would put together the plan of here's where I think, here's what I think we need to do in order to get to closer to the vision that we're trying to accomplish. So now we have this plan in place and the, the, the big change in the organization was a new request would come in and we set up a product committee. Product committee was a key thing for both organizationally and process-wise that allowed us to review all of, the, um, all of the items from every discipline within the company and be able to make decisions on and, and, and really weight how to, the, the difference between moving forward on our long-term goals versus short-term you know, customer deal that we need to go get. Who's on the product committee? What does that look like? The product committee, there's, there's a representative from uh, marketing, sales, kind of support, customer success, product, who runs the meeting. And in our company, the CEO is involved. So 
Who fundamentally owns product at Earth? The product strategy group. Okay. The product group. Do you ultimately, does the product group ultimately have to get buy-in from product committee and, and leadership? Can, uh, at what level autonomy can the product group, group operate, I guess is the, is the question I'm getting at. Yeah, uh, good question. So it, it is our responsibility to look at, a, gather a, a number of different inputs, whether it's from sales, existing customers, analyst research, surveys, anything that you can find. Pull all that together and, and put a plan together and, and really constantly socialize it and get everybody's buy-in throughout the process. So there's, there's not really an autonomy to go and make decisions, nor do we, do we want that. We purposely set up this product committee because we can, we can put together the best plan in the whole world, right, from our perspective. And, and the value of having this product committee and the process that we have in place is I, I walk into the product committee and say, here's the best plan that, you know, of, of where we should go from where we are today. And every single time the, the discussions in the room will capture a, uh, a specific item or a specific topic or there's a specific question from one department and I'll walk out of that meeting with a way better plan than I walked in with. So the, the value of, of getting the different perspectives involved in the business, um, extremely beneficial, not only from a input perspective, because it kind of changes, may change a couple priorities, it may change of how you're thinking about something, it, it, it may force me to answer a question that I, a hard question that I, that I hadn't thought of. And at the same time, because everybody has an opportunity to talk about the plan and give their input, you inherently get buy-in. How often are you meeting? And then how often are you sort of evolving and iterating on the product? Are you, are you in fast iteration cycles now? Or, or you to do, are you taking a fair amount of time to, to, to figure out the roadmap and sort of execute the roadmap? We're in more of a quick iteration cycle. We do about uh, four to five releases a year. I'm looking at Matt because he's... Matt apparently has some of the answers. <laughs> yeah, we do, we do between four and five releases a year, so about, about one, in, one every quarter. The product committee meets every week. The agenda certainly changes. So we're, sometimes we're talking about here's the priority of, here's the priority of items that we believe are in the next, in the next release, which ones are first, second, third, getting input into what those what those priorities might be. But there's always a plan in place for everybody to get input on. Sometimes we just, sometimes we, we move the meeting, but it's, it's, a regular, it's a regular discussion. We just had one last week to talk about what's in the next sprint. So, and, and a lot of those discussions are, okay, in this next release, are we gonna do one sprint? Or are we gonna do three sprints? Are we gonna do two sprints? Why do we need this out? What's the, you know, the general theme? So you kind of get, you know, the, the sales input, oh, well, a couple of these features, it's really important for sales. We have to do this because sale, we need to get this out for sales. Or we have to, or, or hey, no problem, we're good for now. We can do two or three sprints and we can put something out in, in November and it's not a big deal. So it's kind of just 
talking about the release plan, getting everybody's input and buy-in for what the plan is. And then once that the decisions are made in that meeting and, and once we're out, it's all about execution. If you've got a question for, for Derek, um, just raise your hand. Oh, Drew. So Drew was waiting over there with, you know, bated breath. Do you, do you notice much of uh, just an internal morale difference, especially from the development side where you've, you've got this repeatable process where there's lots of input, chances are you're normally building the right thing compared to before where you're pre-building. And you know, have you noticed that sort of reflecting yet and just overall happiness and sentiment with, with the end product? Yes, um, certainly on the development side, our, our senior vice president of development is, is always in, is on the product committee. So he, he gets you know, input and buy-in from, from the highest level. You know, I think the, you know, it's, we're, we're pretty, we have a three-week development process, a couple weeks in a release, so it's very standard. So when we, if we do one sprint, we know what it is. If we do two sprints, we, we know what it is. You know, from a, what, what I find in this particular situation at our company from the development team is that they, they, they really like, they like to be involved. They have a lot of great ideas, right? So we, from a product management perspective, we don't do a lot of super detailed requirements, right? Because we have, we take it more from a story perspective, the representing the customer, get development involved in the solution. And so when you get the development team involved in brainstorming about the solution, how best to do this in the product, how not to do it in the product, you get a lot of engagement and, and, and I would say that the morale then of course increases. As opposed to, for example, on the product side, writing a bunch of detailed requirements and saying, here, man, just, just go develop whatever I said, right? So that's where I see th that kind of involvement, creativity from a technology standpoint to find different solutions, plugins, or, or just custom, uh, custom code. That's where I see the morale getting higher. One of the things we talked about previously, too, is there is, it's not always a path of, of that's linear and, and that is perfect, right? And that there is, it, with some evolution to the product, there's been customers using, you know, Excel sort of in addition to the, in, in addition to the product, right? And is in, maybe in an, in an endorsed way from the company is sort of a, a stopgap between where you are and where the product is going to get. Mm -hmm. Talk about that a little bit, if you would, and why that wasn't the worst thing in the world, right, for customers to sort of be doing things around the edges and, and how that sort of then validates whether you should add something to the product or not. Yeah, so we, um, this is a, it's an interesting topic and I'm trying, I'll try to summarize it the best. So we had a situation where essentially what we were doing from a, you know, I go back to the energy and utility industry comment I made earlier about these unique policies and procedures, right? So these customers would come and say, okay, well, um, the way I collect data for my inspection is this is the way we do it. We ain't changing it. We're, we've invested a lot of time and money and approvals to get this done. So you need, your software needs to do this. So what that, we said, great, we can do that. Well, initially, we'd take the requirements from the customer. We'd hand it over to the development team. Development would actually spend development cycles creating it and then we deliver to the customer and we could do that in a couple weeks, right? So pretty quick turnaround. 
The challenge that that caused was on a couple fronts. Number one, it used up development capacity, right, for things that are very customer specific. Number two, from a, from a, uh, from a money side of things, customers would pay for that customization to happen. But for us, in our business model, we're a, we're a software as a service or so a subscription model. And they were paying a one-time fee for revenue. We, we, we don't want that. We'd rather not have that. I mean, we want the money, of course, but, you know, it's, it's one time and doesn't recur over year over year. Right. There's a, there's a recurring thing in, in there that's important. Yes. Yes. So, so we said, okay, well, we're, we're using up development capacity. So the first problem we saw was, was the development capacity side. And the question that we always had that we really wrestled with was, well, why don't we just have the customers just build their own and we won't even have to deal with it? Well, we weren't sure if A, the customers would want to do that, or B, due to the, the, the sophistication and potentially complexity of the solution that they had the, tech, the, that the expertise to even do it. So it was a sort of a question in our mind. But the problem we had to solve was on the development capacity side. So what development did, they created kind of basically a, a quick application internally uh, that we could use internally that we could, in an Excel document, gather the requirements from the customer, build, it in ex build this, this solution in Excel with a bunch of with fields and rules, feed it up through the, the application, and then development never had to get involved. So we solved the development problem, and then we had, now it's a product management problem because we now are gathering requirements from the customers and we're actually implementing the solution. So at that point, we continued to operate and quickly found out, well, wait a minute, we don't want to be in the services business because we just moved the problem from development to product management. And, but the question still remained is, does it, will, will the customer be able to do this? We chose a couple customers under a pilot program and gave them the, our internal application, even though it was messy and we set expectations and said, listen, this is, this is ugly, but here's how you use it and, you know, go ahead. So they then took it and they started to use it. They started to, even though they, they identified an individual or individuals in the organization to use it, they started to create their own forms and it started to gain momentum. What we found then was, well, wait a minute. If, in if we can, in organizations where existing customers understand and want to take that responsibility, they're now going to create more processes, solve more problems, and, oh, by the way, they have to go buy more users. So that's a good thing. What, what, was, what was very interesting about this whole process, though, is, you know, this is a span of, I don't know, 12, 13, 14 months or so that we had this internal application. And we're, we're still churning out all of these requests from customers. So we essentially built this almost prototype of, of, the, of the product that, that was really, really sol solid and could really scale towards all of the different workflows and, uh, and all the workflows across different customers in the energy and utility industry. We said, we solved this huge problem. So now let's take that and develop it, and develop it in, a, in an end user type solution. So it was, I, I think really to answer your question is, we went through this whole process really in this kind of nasty user experience, but it, it was super valuable because we got a lot of customer validation and we essentially got the requirements on the fly from the customer even though we were trying to solve a different product, problem internally.
Did you have any fear that when you opened up the, this Excel-driven process and this little prototype to customers that that they you know would would think it was hokey, right? That they would think that wow, we thought these guys were a real company, but they're asking us to use you, use this little thing. How, how did you ultimately sort of overcome the the fear and the concerns of giving them a non-product product? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so there was a lot of internal fear that it would give the wrong perception to customers, especially because the, the most value was going to come from the largest global energy and utility customers in the world that we were giving this to. So suddenly we're thinking, well, wait a minute, this is really, really, really going to be bad. However, I think a couple things happened. Number one, we just, we being the product team, really tried to convince them that as long as you set the right expectation, and we ultimately created a, a little document that sort of released some liability from us. So they would more, less from a legal standpoint, but more from a, they were now going to be bought in and, and are kind of assuming responsibility for this thing. And setting expectations was, was just, was key. Now on the other side, the customer, they really wanted it. They kept asking for it because they knew that this is what we were doing when they were interacting with us. And, and the, because these customers were coming back to us on a repeated basis, and they were, we were charging them for this kind of work, they're saying, I I'm tired of paying for this. Why can't we just do it? We have, the, t we have the, the ability to do it. And we said, great. So the customer kind of pulled it from us as well. So it was kind of a, a perfect storm of that where the customers were, some of the customers were pulling and we were trying to figure out how to push it out. Do you still do some customizations today? We do. And, and how, do you, how do you draw the line? And I think it's, it's thinking about the difference between customization and, and configuration is, is more than just semantics, right? But I yes. think it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a line that many people don't get right. Mm -hmm. So. You, you, you've been able to build a product now that is more configurable. That's right. And you still do some customizations, and you probably still have some legacy customizations out there from existing existing customers. Mm -hmm. So how do you guys sort of think about those two things differently now, customization and configuration? You know, I go back to, you go back to keeping on that particular vision and goals as to where we want to go, right? So having that framework in mind really allows you to to say no to some customizations that come in. Um, a lot of times, there's, there's some customizations that we absolutely have to do, but, but to me, in my mind, a customization equals development cycles, right? So, and development cycles are very precious, especially when you, when you wanna use development cycles to build capabilities that are gonna, gonna go meet a long-term goal or a different objective. So, so that's where, the, the, when a customization request comes in, it ultimately gets to the product team and we basically look at it and say, is this customization request good for one person? Or can we take the approach and say, yes, it'll be good for one person and one, per, one, one customer has this request, but how can we develop the solution so everybody gets benefit and value from this? And the, the ideal situation is it comes in from the customer and it's already on our roadmap, or at least in our backlog, and then just gets elevated to the front because it could solve this customer's problem, yet 
you know, it, it helps us move our goal forward. I, I think, you know, from, from an organizational perspective, saying no is sometimes pretty hard, right? Um, because of that, that customization, you know, the dollars that are, that are gonna come in. But if you're, I, I think the, you know, this goes back to the product committee, when, when those big things come in, you have, to make, you have to just really make a strategic decision about do you wanna to go towards your vision or do you wanna spend the time and, and do, the, um, do the custom thing? Now, because we have a lot of the, that custom work that d still does come in, we, we try to allocate a, a, a very small percentage toward that in our, in our roadmap on an ongoing basis. Do you talk about those customizations and those requests as part of the product committee? Absolutely. Uh, so <laughs> the large ones, certainly, there are smaller ones where we'll just go and do it. Now, because of the, the, the frequency of the requests that came in from, uh, as customizations, we actually uh, have, we, we've kind of gone back and forth on this, but we divided our development team. So we had a, a long-term growth, new feature development team, and then we had our custom development team. So that custom development team was just churning and burning. So we just put them in the pile and, and go. And we could, we could do releases every week or every two weeks and just, and just get those things out. But the more we said no, that volume decreases and that work doesn't come in and we can shift those resources over to the new development. So, and the more configurability that we put into the product, you know, then the less customization we'll have to do. And this goes back to the whole thing that I was talking about with the Excel thing. Ultimately, what we did was we took that Excel engine and we, a couple weeks ago, have launched the customer-facing view of, of that particular product. And at that point... RIP Excel engine? Your what? RIP Excel engine? Is it gone? Yes. Oh. RIP Excel engine, that's right. It's gone. And, and now the customers are able to, to do it on their own. But when we, because when we did that release, it works for all of our existing customers. Why? Because it's been tested for 14, 18 months, right? And it's pretty, it, was a, it was essentially a product that we did internally. Right. So, no, I love that. I, I love that part of the story and the evolution of the product. That, the, yeah. the Excel engine, I think, is really cool. Because most of us are afraid to ever implement and expose something like that to customers, mm -hmm. right? That we, because we're in fear of they're going to think less of us, right? Uh, organizationally and as, as product people and as developers, right? So, yeah. uh, I mean, kudos to you guys for being willing to, to expose that and yeah. to leverage that as, a, as essentially as a prototype. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's, and what that, what was interesting then when we developed it, we didn't have to, we didn't have really requirements on the back end because development knew what they had to develop. And then it was all about the user experience. So, that, that then is saying, okay, now we have this complex engine and we can do it internally and it's this Excel spreadsheet. How do we get a user experience and design guys to come in and make this super easy, right? So, that, so, so the customers that are willing to take on the responsibility and create their own, configure their own, in this case, forms within our product, it's, we don't have to have training and implementation. It's just, it's intuitive. It's because, you know, this goes back, the expectation is it's, I mean, this is B2B software and, you know, the energy and utility industry is not super technolo technologically advanced. So you, you, you gotta, and, and, and everybody's conditioned to have it work like your iPhone. So, 
So the user experience just becomes that much more important because you don't want to spend all this time developing the product, getting it out, and then having, a, having it not be used because that was ultimately your goal. So now we're in a situation where that's already out to market and customers are now creating their own stuff. So we, we don't use development cycles anymore and we don't use product management cycles anymore. We may, in some cases, use like our implementation you know, for some customers that actually don't want to do it on their own, but it's simple enough that, that really you don't have to be technically inclined in order to actually do it. And it's a differentiator in our, yeah, in our software. Right, absolutely. As you think, as, as other companies are trying to evolve and, and implement a, a product management discipline within their companies, how does, how does, let's just take it individually first, how does someone become good at product management? That's a hard question. Um, I didn't send him, I didn't send yeah. him this one ahead of time. Yeah. I, just thought, I thought about this one in the moment. I thought, um, well, this is a really good know, question. I should ask it. Yeah, I, I guess I would say, how does, how does someone really start or, or become product management? I guess I would... Or be good at it, Be right? good at it, yeah. Oh, so, so I guess the, 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 way, the way to be good at it is to, is to really be, be market-driven, I guess, is, is, is what I would say. And what that means is, you know, is to identify from a, whether you have a product today or, or you're looking to invest in a product or you're, you're thinking about a product, determining from a market perspective, where, where do you fit in this broader landscape today? Or where would you fit in a, in a really defined market? Because having that, that market perspective will we'll say, okay, well, there's a market for a reason, right? There's, it's, it's solving a problem. There's a number of competitors in that market you know, that are making money around it. So if, you're, if, you're, if you start from that high-level market perspective and, and choose where you either want to be or where you are, you now have a broader perspective as to where you might go with the solution that you're solving. Even if you're solving just one part of that today, and then as, as you go on, your market view may change and, and evolve, but as long as you're constantly keeping that view from a much broader perspective, the day-to-day -day decisions that you make solving a customer problem will be heavily influenced by that. And that's what I would say would, would be good product management because you're not just focused on one particular problem that you're trying to solve always. I mean, yes, you have to solve that problem today, but in the longer term, where, where are you going? When, and, and how could this be more broadly applicable? And could you give some um, advice and, and insights onto, uh, in, into how to manage a team, right? Because a, a product team is multidisciplinary, right? There's, there's design and there's development and there might be even be deployment and QA, right? And then, and then there's the customer component, right? And then there's the, so how does someone take all of the, the, the people that are going to be part of the process and do it in a very collaborative way where everybody feels like they've got, you know, they're contributing and they have a voice, but they also only play their role? Right, so that, yeah. that that bounds, you know, don't get overstepped. Where development is now influencing design and UI, right? And 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 UI isn't trying to force something into development that they've got no way to code, or at least no way to code it 
efficiently and within some reasonable amount of time, right? Yeah. There, there are a lot of compromises that get made to the process, right? Yep, yep. And one of the biggest challenges of a, of a product manager or a product management group is, is you might have, you have all the responsibility with, with and, and you have to influence everybody else to get it done because they don't have direct reports. Now, if you're lucky enough to have a team, you know, you, you look for a person that's going to be, you know, share your vision and, and help define those roles and responsibilities. But in that product management team, I think the, you know, you're really looking for characteristics that can, that can really manage and influence the rest of the organization without having the, that rest of the organization have a, uh, they're not direct reports. So I go back to it's, I, I go back to the, uh, the putting your plan together and, and getting as much input from the different departments and, and disciplines within the organization for input and buy-in and away you go. How do we develop a more product culture in Columbus? Because right? really, we're, we're just beginning to have these conversations now, mm -hmm. right, about we have really good development discipline in town, you know, millions of meetups. And we were talking about this before we started, right? Yeah. Lots of things for developers, lots of things for designers. There isn't a lot right now, and we haven't been uh, historically very focused on product holistically. In your mind, how do we get better at that as, as, as a tech and, and digital and startup community? I, that's a that's a very difficult question. That I, I mean, I continue. I'm I'm trying to find the answer to that, as you probably all are. And I just keep going back to we have the 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 individuals today here in Columbus that are focused on the product management discipline. I think we have th th that group or, or are they group really are they really just bad developers? <laughs> or bad designers that couldn't do either of those disciplines and so they ended up in the middle as product managers. Matt, I'm, I'm joking, mostly. Okay. I'm mostly joking, okay? Um, you, or is, it, you know, are product people, do product people tend to see the world differently and are they wired a little bit differently than, than the, the disciplines of design and development are? I think so. When, in my experience through, through hiring and interviewing here for the product management discipline, there, there are there are more individuals that either were put in that role or just found themselves in product management versus made a decision to get into product management. The the most success that I've had in in from a recruiting perspective here in Columbus is to look for business analysts. Start with the business analyst role because a lot of the business analyst role has a lot of those characteristics, right? They're they're, they're focused on the business, they're doing requirements and that kind of thing. But having a discussion with some of those individuals and saying, you know, talk to me, you know, there, there is business analysts and there's a role for that, but how do they see, you know, where, where do they see their career going? And some of them will say into product management and product management, I believe, is an evolution of that to ultimately own a lot more of the product direction. You know, I, I think Columbus, we have to have a success. We have to have a, a like a, a a large company, product focused company. Of course, I'm I'm um, I mean I'm focused in the software industry, right? So, to be a technology or software, that's where a lot of product management discipline comes from. So, if you have a large, couple successful technology focused companies that have the product discipline and and have used something like a pragmatic marketing methodology where you're 
defining the roles and responsibilities of the product manager uh, according to best practices and giving them the autonomy that they need to, to go do their jobs, et cetera, then that will just constantly breed more and more success. But we need to have a big success. You need to have a, a big exit of, of, some, of a company that has a bunch of product managers that were involved in making the decision to be that, to be that success. Kind of a compound answer, but. No, but I think it's, I, I think it's, it's um, a sound one in that I think, you know, fundamentally, if you're creating a new discipline within a community, so if you're trying to create more entrepreneurs, the best way to, to produce really good founders is to have, have them have taken the journey inside of another company. Right, yep. and then and then they see a problem, and then they've had the experience of solving it inside another company, and so they sort of understand what they're getting themselves into and what's going to take. I think the same is true for product management. Yep. If someone's a part of a product team in a company that is successful, then they're going to it's it, there's going to be seeds planted mm -hmm. for other people to say, oh, this is a valuable piece of the company, it was critical to the success, and then more people will become product managers and become product people fundamentally, and more companies will become product focused and will become product companies yep. versus, you know, being, being, you know, a development sales driven company. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of entrepreneurs are product managers, not by title, right? They're just, they just are, right? No, they, by definition, I think you are, Yeah. right? regardless of, of what kind of product it is, but certainly if you're going to build a, a software tech company, right? Yep. You are, are by definition, a product, a product person and a product manager. And I think it's actually one of the challenges in the entrepreneurial space is some founders don't necessarily look at it that way. That's right. right? They, they, they acquiesce product ownership and responsibility to somebody else, maybe mm -hmm. even somebody on their team, maybe a co-founder or a CTO or a development manager, sometimes mm -hmm. to a service firm, right? Yep. But that they have to look at it and say that I have to be the product owner and I have to be the product manager. Yeah, I think, you know, going back to the, the Earth Solutions example, you know, our, uh, back in 2011, our, our CEO basically identified, well, wait a minute, we have this really good, we have this really good company, we have, we have, we have development, we have sales, we have some support kind of thing, we have, we have a little bit of marketing, but we don't have, he was, he was, uh, he had enough foresight to say, we, we don't have product management. We need product management. And so we need to bring in product management to help us set a direction and, and go forward. And I think that, that it really helped change the complexion of the company to insert that product management discipline into an otherwise small, you know, you know, company that was, they were doing, they were doing just fine. They just needed this, this different outside vision perspective as to where to go and, and, and what to do next. Provide some options. Well, you at least improve the odds of getting it right. That's right. Right? If you don't have a product management discipline within the company, you, the odds are, are less in your favor that you're going to get it right. Yeah. Right? And, yeah. And, and, you know, I, a couple of, of previous talks I, I've done and, and ones that, and kind of hit on this earlier about the, the whole market-driven approach. A lot of the entrepreneurs I talk to, they're, you know, they're, they're very focused. They're solving the problem. They're, they're going after you know, their, their solution and they're developing and, and, and you know, they're, they're trying to get sales involved. But when you sit down and have a coffee with them and said, well, what market are you in? 
and they just kind of look at you. Uh, don't know. Don't know what market I'm in. Um, I'm in the energy and utility market. Mm, that's really an industry. It's not really a market, right? I'm in the, you know, are you, uh, I'm in the, you know, they're, they're not saying, well, well, ultimately I'm, I'm in the CRM market or I'm in the, um, you know, mobile field service management market or, you know, this is where I'm going. So you, you, they're, they're trying to solve a problem without this, this broader context of where they, where they actually live in the world, even though, you know, they're not selling to the enterprise and Gartner's not gonna call them tomorrow and say, hey, we need to put you in this report, but at least you have a broader context of, as to what's out there. I mean, if, and, and you know, I, again, I use Gartner as this example, they're very technology focused and software focused, but you know, if in my world, in the software world, if, if you know, those, those guys, and it's not just Gartner, it's all the, you know, IDC, Forrester, they, they spend a lot of time trying to take every software platform out there and put them in little buckets of, category, you know, little bucket categories and say, These are, this is a market, right? So if you're creating a piece of software and you can't identify with one of those, you know, then, then I think there's, there's, there's a challenge there. So, and, and if you can't answer that question, then it might limit you in the short term and you might make different decisions than if you had that much broader perspective. Awesome. Thank you for coming and chatting with us. Thank you Appreciate for having it. me. So if you have further questions for Derek afterwards, uh, I'm sure you'd be open to you know, people pinging you and, and asking. Absolutely. Because it, it's, uh, we need a bigger product discipline within Tau, and so you're one of the few Agreed. people that's sort of focused on, on product and the product strategy and management um, discipline. So Yeah, I'd love to meet others and connect with them. It's a... This is a great group that you're organizing here. Thank Thanks. you. Thanks. Appreciate it. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Product Camp Columbus event podcast. We will be back next month with more product insights and expertise. Thanks again to our lead partners, AWH and Rev1 Ventures. Until next time, remember, great products matter. <laughs>